Second Samuel. We're going to look at chapter 2 this evening. Last week we looked at the first seven verses of, of 2 Samuel chapter 2. And pretty lengthy chapters. And tonight we're going to get through the rest of the chapter. But let's go ahead and read the first seven verses and then let's, um, we'll start at verse 8. So it says it happened after this. Meaning after this, meaning that David or, um, or Saul had already passed from the scene. His sons had passed away, were, were killed in battle with Saul. And David, as his heart was, just so large and loving Saul, even though Saul didn't love him, David respected the man, he respected the office. And, um, and as a result of him and his sons falling in battle to the Philistines, David wrote a, a lament or an elegy for Saul and his best friend, Jonathan, Saul's son. And so when it says, and it happened after this, that's what it means. It happened after this, that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the, daughter, the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household, and so they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. And then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, The men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. And so David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, You are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I will also repay you this kindness, because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strengthened and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So a really interesting moment in Israel's history, an interesting moment in David's history. David, had, having been anointed king many years prior to this, and now he is going to go up to Hebron, which is a, a city which is south of Jerusalem and west of the Dead Sea. And David is going to go there with his wives, with his, all his men that were with him, the 400 or 600 men that were with him, their wives, their kids. They were all going to go up to Hebron. And as a result of going there, his own tribe, the tribe of Judah, they made David king over them because Saul had passed from the scene. And now there's this vacuum in Israel. And, um, but Judah decided, and, and they knew in their hearts that David was the rightful king. And we'll look at that this evening. And so notice what it says. Uh, excuse me. Notice what it says in verse 1. But Abner. <laughs> but Abner. Whenever you read something and, and then it says but someone. You know, it could be but John. But, you know, whatever it is. There's always a, a change in the flavor of what is happening. And certainly Abner is going to come to the forefront here, his general. Notice what it says in verse 8. It says, But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, 
He took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, and over Ephraim, and over Benjamin, and over all Israel. Now, Judah had anointed David in Hebron, but now Abner is going to take Saul's youngest son, Ishbosheth. And he is going to make him king and seek to put him on the throne over all of Israel, including Judah, whom Judah has already proclaimed David as their king. And so you can always sense that there's something going on here. You can sense what's going to happen, and certainly it does. There is a, there's going to be a war between these two, between Judah and between the rest of all of Israel. Now, Abner, it's interesting how Abner decided to make his son. And that seems to be the normal thing. When a king dies, his son normally takes his place. We call that nepotism. Um, nepotism can take many forms. It usually happens in, in, in king's succession. Or it could happen at a job site. Uh, the owner of the, of the company makes his son the CEO, and, you know, and, and, and so it goes. But Abner, he was either ignorant of the call on David's life or he was in rebellion against it. And it's very possible he was in rebellion against the revealed will of God. And we'll look at why that is. And it's a dangerous thing, isn't it, to be against the one whom God has chosen. Whomever God has chosen, if you're against that person, you're on really shaky ground because you are messing with what God has ordered and what he has ordained. Doesn't it say in Romans 13? That, you know, the, 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 the powers that be, they are ordered, they are ordained by God. He has the right to put down one and raise up another. And so he does. It's a dangerous thing to plot against what God has chosen. Because God has a plan, and woe to you if you are working against God. Turn with me to Acts chapter 5. We're going to look at something here. The title of the message this evening, I gave it a title, I didn't need to, but I titled it Working Against the Will of God. Working Against the Will of God. And this is exactly what we see Abner doing. But turn with me to Acts chapter 5 because we're going to see this kind of thing. And unfortunately, history has a tendency to repeat itself. Something happens, and it doesn't take long before man does the same exact thing over and over again. He doesn't seem to learn from his mistakes. Have you noticed that? Have you learned from all of your mistakes? You know, I'm 51 years old, and I feel like I'm just now getting it. But prior to that, my life was always testing God. I can do better, God. I can do better. I, can, I, don't, I won't get caught because I'm better than the other guy who got caught because he's just not as smart as I am. And God's going, okay, I can't wait to see this. News at 11. Pastor gets busted, right? <laughs> So that is the way it is. But look at Acts chapter 5. We just don't seem to learn. And we're not very discerning. And again, we're looking at something, you know, back a thousand, around a thousand BC. And now, fast forward now into the first century AD, right after the church is born. Notice what, a, uh, what happened in chapter 4 and 5. You remember that Peter, James, and John, or Peter, or, or, uh, Peter and James, yeah, James and John, they heal a man in the temple. The religious leaders get all uptight about it because he, you know, he, 
They'd never seen anything like that. And so they, they arrest them. They bring them in. They threaten them. And then an angel of God lets them loose in the middle of the night, and the angel of God tells them to go back and do the same thing they were doing the day before. So the angel releases them, they go out and they do the same thing, and they get arrested again. And now they're standing before them, the religious leaders and the Sanhedrin, which is a member of 50, 51 men, I'm sorry, 70 or 71 men, and they are the ruling class in Israel. And notice what it says that, after what I just shared with you comes to pass, it says in verse 33 of Acts chapter 5, that when the religious leaders heard this, they were furious and they plotted to kill them because they had just gotten out of jail. They don't know how they got out of jail. An angel of God got them out of jail. They can't explain it. The guards can't explain it. There's, there's a lot to be, there's some heads are going to roll literally over this. So they heard this, they were furious, they plotted to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel. Remember this name, because Paul was brought up under the tutelage of this man. Because Paul, again, was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. So Paul respected this man greatly. So he stood up, this Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people, and he commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thetis rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered, and it came to nothing. And after this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this, is a, if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Very good counsel, wouldn't you agree? Fighting against God. And what wisdom? If it's not of God, it's not going to come to anything. And if it is of God, you better be very careful. And it was of God. All the miracles that surrounded Jesus' death and resurrection on the day of Pentecost, the miracles that occurred there and continue to occur afterwards, this was not something they could just hide. It was something that was very very noticeable, and you cannot overthrow it, lest you find yourself fighting against God. Raise your hand if you'd like to fight against God. I don't want to fight against God. I want to be his friend. I want to be his subject. I want to be subject to him in everything. I don't want to argue with him. I do that. I've done that. And you have too, by the way. I can see by the looks on your faces. You probably even did it before you came into church tonight. Arguing with God in the parking lot. But we do. We do. There was a, a wonderful pastor and an author named Cyril Barber, and he said this concerning Abner. He said, Abner knew God's choice was David, yet he took a course of action diametrically opposed to what he knew was right. And he has many followers even today. In business and industry, law and government, medicine and human resource management, entertainment and the arts, and especially in education, people will deliberately formulate plans, make policy, engage in activities, or teach material with scarcely a thought to the ethical ramifications of their actions. 
The result is a moral breakdown that has brought our nation to a position of spiritual and ethical bankruptcy. Does that sound familiar? America? It does. It sounds very familiar. And that quote came from a book that was written in the year 2000, 21 years ago. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We have this tendency to go against God's revealed will. Knowing God's will and saying, no, thank you. Doesn't it, doesn't it say in the scriptures in Psalm 14? Doesn't it say, the fool has said in his heart, no, God. The fool has said in his heart, some of your Bibles say there is no God. But either way, whether the fool says there is no God or whether he just says no God, it doesn't really matter. Both are in a pretty bad place. Look with me at verse 18 of chapter 1. And this is, a, to me, a, a mirror, if you will, of our country right now. I think in every generation, every man who stood behind a pulpit could say the same. But as time goes on, it becomes more vivid, more colorful, more, you know, it used to be a faded color. And now the vibrant colors, are, it's, just, it's becoming more saturated, this, this, this dependence, the independence of God, this, this um, aberrance, this objecting to God. And, and putting our fist in the air and saying, we will not have you rule over us. We, want, we don't, don't want anything to do with you. Read with me from verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Does that happen in our media today? Is, is the media suppressing truth? Oh yeah, they're suppressing truth, all right, and they're blocking you, they're canceling you. If you're a Christian and you've got something good to say, they're going to cancel you. They're going to go after you, and they're doing it. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their, in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Sounds like many universities today. College professors. I remember one college professor, I had to write a paper, and I had a very different viewpoint on, on the professor. And I didn't know the professor, and that was my, my first check against me. I really didn't know him, because had I known him, I might have just written what he wanted to hear. But I was pretty naive as a freshman in college, so I wrote my own heart, my own opinion, based on facts that I have learned and gleaned from. And let me tell you, the paper I don't think was that bad, but he failed me in the paper because he, did, he disagreed with my opinion. His was a worldly worldview, and even as a non-Christian, I wasn't a Christian at the time. I was bringing morality into the paper, and, and I, I got failed. He failed me. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things, certainly speaking of idolatry, of, of, of anim, or, you know, objects. 
Therefore, notice, God gave them up to uncleanness. And this is what we see in our culture now, in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. God made Adam and Eve, and it was good. He said that they were good. They were to be with each other, and they were to have intimacy, and they were to fill the earth. But notice, but they exchanged the the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful. It won't be long when when a passage like that will cause a church to be banned. It's already happening in Canada. They're running them out of town for reading passages like this. I wonder how long it'll be before they'll censor me because I believe and read the Word of God. You may laugh and think, well, that'll never happen in America. Well, things are changing very rapidly. You better be praying. We'd better be praying. Likewise, also the men, they burn in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. Notice, God gave them over. There comes a point where your, 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 your very conscience becomes seared. When a conscience becomes seared, it means there's no longer any room for the truth. You've made up your mind. It's solidified. I'm, 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 I'm in this now. I'm not going to budge. And there are so many folks that have gotten to that place. And if you be careful if you find yourself being so rigid about something that our culture is selling you. Because before long, you can, your conscience can be seared. And you're in a very, very, very bad place. God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder and strife and deceit, evil-mindedness, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but they also approve of those who practice them. Totally against the will of God, against what he says. That's where we're at in America. And you remember when the children of Israel, when they were in in Egypt, before they fled or before they left, what did God tell Pharaoh? Pharaoh, let my people go. He told Moses, Moses, go before Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. So Moses does. He brings Aaron, all these miracles and the lice and the plagues and the frogs and the blood and the water and everything else. And finally, you know, all throughout this, Pharaoh's going, yeah, we'll let you go. Yeah, we'll let you go. No, I'm not going to let you go. And then God brings another thing and then another thing and then another thing. And finally, he takes his firstborn. And then finally, it breaks the back of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's not interested in doing the will of God. God spoke very clearly, this is what I want you to do. And yet he decided 
no, I am not going to do that. And finally, he does let them go, but then he changes his mind. He pursues after them. You remember the, the, the historical events and how God delivered them through the Red Sea. But the will of God is spoken, and yet there are people, and we do it ourselves. We go against it. Abner was one of those men. Abner, I believe, knew that David was to be the rightful king, but instead he chooses to put his Saul's youngest son, Ishbosheth, who was really a, uh, the youngest and really the most inexperienced of, all, of everyone. And it's really Abner who was on the throne, wasn't it? Abner. He, he was really the power behind Ishbosheth. So who is this Abner? It tells us, we, we, we've been talking about him in 1 Samuel, but just to refresh our minds, he is the commander of, of the army of, of Saul. He's the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. And of course, Abner now, is because he's related to Saul, he's got this job. And, we, and, and this is what we call nepotism. And nepotism is the practice whereby those who, with power influence, are favoring relatives or friends, especially by giving them jobs. And, and that's been going on since the beginning of time. And nepotism is not always a bad thing. It's not always a bad thing. After all, who would know better the intimate dynamics of things relating to a family or a family business or, or a dynasty other than the one who was a part of it? Those who share the same vision of it. Those, those are the people who, who know and it would, seem, it would seem very necessary and make a lot of sense for someone to put a family member in power. David had Joab. Joab was his nephew and commander over his army. And Joab's two younger uh, brothers were among David's mighty men. But Abner, the son of Ner, verse 8, commander of Saul's army, he took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. This gentleman, Ishbosheth, is, is not mentioned in, uh, as being one of Saul's son, sons, except in 1 Chronicles chapter 8, verse 33. Up to this point, all we know is that of the three other sons who died in battle with Saul when he was um, attacked by the Philistines, this name, Ishbosheth, means man of shame. His name also is Ishbaal or Ashbaal, which means fire of Baal. It's interesting that Ishbosheth was not in the battle. Remember, his three brothers were killed. Why wasn't he there? Was he not equipped? Was he too young? I don't think he was too young. What was he doing? Why wasn't he there? Maybe they were keeping him back just in case that the whole family isn't wiped out. Maybe that's what they did. We don't really know. Scripture doesn't really tell us. But notice that they took Ishbosheth, the son of, of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. Now, Mahanaim, and I'm, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, it's on the east side of the Jordan. If you were look, uh, to look at a map of Israel, like if you were to look at Israel, if you're, as you're looking at me, here is the west part of Israel in the east, and the Jordan River goes down like this. Well, on the eastern side of the Jordan River, there's a mountain range called uh, the Gilead, Mount Gilead. It's a mountain range. Well, right on the other side of that mountain is this Mahanaim. 
and it's a very fortified place, and it's a rocky crag kind of place where you, to get into it, you've got to go down into this little ravine. It's very hard to get into, and, and therefore very easy to uh, fortify and to keep safe those beyond. And so this is where Ishbosheth's rule seems to have been pretty solid in that area. And he not only ruled over the eastern side of the Jordan River, but also all the, the tribes of the north he was ruling over. And so, verse 9, he made, Abner made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites. Now, if you notice this word Asherites, it's spelled with a U. Now, Asher is spelled with an E, usually, so that's a, a, a misspelling right there. Um, in Judges chapter 1, verse 31, it tells us that it is the Asherites with the correct spelling, so that's just a spelling thing. But notice, he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, from those on the Asher in the, in the north part of Israel, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. And then in verse 10, it says, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. And so Ishbosheth, this young, youngest son of Saul. Now what's interesting is we know that David ruled from Hebron for seven and a half years, but it, but it says here that this man only ruled for two years. So what they think really happened is after the death of Saul, there was some time lapsed. There was some time in between after Saul died before Ishbosheth came into power. Maybe even a handful of, you know, like uh, three or four years or five years or whatever. Uh, before he would, because we know that after he ruled for two years and then he was killed, and then it was after that that David would take over all of Israel. And we'll look at that as we go. But David was in the will of God. And it wasn't going to be easy either. Do you find being in the will of God is easy? Sometimes it is. There's a great blessing being in the will of God. I think there's great peace when you're in the will of God. But if you're in the will of God, the enemy, the last thing he wants is for you to be in the will of God. And there will be warfare. There will be challenges to that. So don't be discouraged when you're in the will of God and things aren't going the way you think they should go. You're probably doing exactly the right thing. Because if, you're, if you are in the will of God and you're doing what God has called you to do, there will be opposition. And think of David. You know, years before this, 10 to 15 years prior to all this, he was anointed king and he still hasn't seen it come to fruition. And now he's just the king over Judah. And notice David's not pouting. He's not stamping his feet. I wanted the whole thing, and I'm only getting a little piece of it. You know, he's not you know, having a fit. He's not beating people up and, and, and trying to make things happen. David was very patient. He waited upon the Lord. There's a good lesson for us, to wait upon the Lord. I need to learn to wait upon him, to be patient. It's not that God needs more time. He's usually waiting for me to get into a place where he can use me. Or use us. See, God can do anything, but he likes to use us. And he just doesn't use us whenever he, he, he prepares us. So that when we, he uses us, we don't touch the glory that belongs to him. Oftentimes, he uses you unbeknownst to you. And I think that's really wonderful when he does. Because then, if we knew that we did some big thing, and it was a really huge deal to the kingdom of God, we'd all be going, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
went to Harvard. That's why God's going, no, oh, it doesn't have nothing to do with Harvard. Has nothing to do with RIT, has nothing to do with U of R, has nothing to do with the Eastman School of Music, it has nothing to do with any of that. My spirit within you, that is all that is needed. But David was in the will of God, and it wasn't going to be gravy train. One author said, To be in the will of the Lord, as David was, virtually guarantees opposition. And I can say amen to that. Ever since uh, Pastor Jeff left and, and the Lord put me in this place, and I know that he did, I didn't know it and, and for, for years. I just just kind of patient. He, he, he did all that. Let me tell you, the opposition met me. I had a, a honeymoon period. That, that's what pastors call a honeymoon period, that first several months when you're in the pastorate. Everything's going well. The Lord's answering everything. Everyone thinks you're wonderful, you know. And then the honeymoon wears out, and nobody likes you anymore. <laughs> Nobody likes you. Everything you do is wrong. I can't believe he said that. I'm leaving. I'm out of here. These things happen. But I've seen this myself. Verse 11, it says, And the time that David was in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Again, um, Hebron, right to the west of the Dead Sea. And, and based on verse 10 above, it appears that Ishbosheth reigned in that last two years of David's seven-and-a-half-year reign in Hebron. But notice uh, verse 11. It says, At that time when David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah, it was seven years and six months. I'd like to take you just on a quick tour of where David has been and, and how he got to the place where he's at. If you remember in Psalm, uh, not Psalm, excuse me, in First Samuel chapter 16, Remember that God told Samuel to go to the house of Jesse, who was in Bethlehem. And so Samuel, being the obedient prophet that he was, he didn't ask God questions. He didn't argue with him. And Saul was then king on the throne. And God tells Samuel, Samuel, go to the house of Jesse. And there's a son there that I want you to anoint. And you remember, he goes and he sees uh, Jesse's seven sons. And he looks at the oldest, the tallest, the handsome guy. He said, surely this must be the one God says to him. Nope, I've refused him. What about him? He look, he's got a great smile, got a great set of teeth. No pimples, Lord, look at him. What a good-looking young guy. Certainly he must be the one. Nope, he's not the one. But this next guy, he's got, he looks great. He's, he's got all the fashion going for him. He's got the tats all over him. He looks great. He's even got a, a ring in his nose. God says, no, I refused him. Finally, he's like, do you have any other sons, Jesse? Oh, yeah, there's David. You better go get him because we're not going to sit until he comes. So he does. He comes, and the Lord said, that's the one, anoint him. The one that nobody wanted. And so Samuel anoints David. And then from that moment on, David is a marked man. He works for Saul. Remember, he was a, a gifted guitar player. He was a gifted musician, so he goes in before Saul's court. And whenever the evil spirit came upon Saul, David would play the harp, and it would cause the, the, the spirit to dispel and, and, and soothe Saul. But then as David became more prosperous and began to go out into battle and gain the victories, and all the women are singing about him, oh, as soon as the women start singing about a man rather than the king, you better look out. He's going to be a headless man before long. And David was hunted. He was hunted by Saul. And you remember, in his desert wanderings, there came a point, and I'm fast-forwarding here, 
when he was in the wilderness, that Jonathan, Saul's son, who was a best friend of David, he arose and he went to David. This is in 1 Samuel 23. He went to David in the woods and he strengthened his hand in God and and said to him, notice, do not fear for the Lord, the hand of Saul my father shall not find you and you shall be king over Judah? No. Jonathan knew exactly what Samuel had told him because God says, this man I want to lead over all of Israel. And Jonathan confirmed it to David. He said, you shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows it. Would to God that Jonathan would have lived and and he could have been David's second-hand man. He would have been a great man. He would have been much better than his, his uncle Joab. He would have been a much better man. But ultimately, David was supposed to rule over all of Israel, not just Judah. And then let's go forward just a few chapters. We're going to get to this, but we'll just look at the first couple of verses here of 2 Samuel chapter 5. Because now, we're going forward in history. What is the ultimate fruition of that? So David, he's anointed. Years go by. He's affirmed in that. He's hunted by Saul. Saul dies. He rules and reigns from Hebron for seven and a half years. And at the end of that, notice what it says in 2 Samuel 5, just the first five verses. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron, and they spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, you here it is, notice, all the people know this. They say, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Not just Judah, but over all. They all knew it. Abner knew it. But yet he's going against the will of God, the revealed will of God. That's a very dangerous place to be. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made, an, and made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 40 years. And Hebron, he reigned over Judah for seven, uh, seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. And so what a, an interesting timeline for David. What a very interesting time. And it was something that required patience. It required faith. David wasn't in any great hurry. We don't have any record of him having a tantrum. He was just waiting upon the Lord. What else is he going to do? And what a wonderful character of the man. He wouldn't even assassinate the king. He wouldn't even let other people assassinate the king. He's like, you know what? If God has called me to this, and here's a, this is such a wonderful lesson. If God says he's going to do something, then you don't need to Put your gears in forward and try to make it happen for him. You can just rest and wait upon him. And believe me, if it's his will, he will bring it to pass. I'm proof of that. And I know the same is true in your life. He's done the same thing. He does the same things. Why? Because he loves us. But we don't have to stress and fuss and... And, and scrape and kick and fight and scream and bite. We don't need to do any of that. We can just rest. Just rest in the Lord and wait upon him. It's so simple and yet so profound. And yet Abner was not of that ilk. 
but David was. Saul was not of that ilk, but David was. Notice in verse 12 it says, Now Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, they went out, underline that word, that phrase, went out, from Maenaim to Gibeon. This phrase, went out, is a military term, and it seems to mean a planned military confrontation. And Maenaim was this, um, if you were to, again, look at a map, and the Sea of Galilee is up here, and the Dead Sea is right here. Maenaim is somewhere in the middle of the Jordan, and then just go east. Over the Gilead Mountains, right on the other side there, you'll find this place, Maenaim. And Gibeon is roughly seven miles northwest of Jerusalem. And perhaps Abner and the servants of Ishbosheth, it seems that they were going to force the hand of Judah. Because remember, Saul's dead, Ishbosheth's on the throne, Abner put him there. So they're thinking to themselves, ah, let's make a visit to our brothers in Judah. We'll bring some cookies, we'll negotiate peace, and then force them to, you know, no, it doesn't, it doesn't happen that way. So they, they come over the Jordan, they come over to Judah. And it says in Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Zeruiah is a woman. Zeruiah is David's uh, sister and also the mother of Joab and Joab's sons. And the servants of David, notice, and they went out to meet them by the pool of Gibeon. Gibeon is just a little bit northwest of Gibeah, which is the hometown of Saul. So they go up to Gibeon, the, the, the men of, of Abner and Ishbosheth, they meet there, and then David and his men, or, or Joab and his men come and they meet them at the pool of Gibeon. And so they sat down, and just picture this, one on one side of the pool, this group on one side of the pool, and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner gets this great idea. He says to Joab, let the young men now arise and compete before us. In other words, let them take the battle. And, um, and Joab said, let them arise. You remember when David went out against Goliath, instead of having the, the Philistines and the, and the um, army of Israel come together and for, this, for there to be this mass collateral damage, they just said they're going to send out one captain. And then Israel's going to send out one captain. And whoever wins that wins the whole thing, right? Same thing they're doing here. They got 12 men from uh, David. David's side, and they got 12 men from Abner or Ishbosheth's side, and they're saying, why don't they just get together and have a duel here, and whoever wins, that's the one who's going to be king over everything. And so they arose, verse 15, and went over by number, 12 from Benjamin, followers of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 from the servants of David. And each one grasped his opponent by the head and thrust his head in his opponent's, or thrust his sword, excuse me, in his opponent's side, and so they all fell down together. That sounds like a really great thing. Sounds very practical. All of them, the 12, they go together and they just grab each other and then, you know, and everybody dies. So they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called the Field of Sharp Swords. Kind of a very thoughtful name. You know, very artistic. It took a while to come up with that, you know, um, it was just such a, a difficult thing, which is in Gibeon. In verse 17, it says, So there was a very fierce battle that day, 
And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And so it wasn't enough after that had happened, after this bloodbath between these 12 men and these other 12 men, they decide, you know what, if they're all dead, then we're just all, you know, it, it just created mayhem. And now they're fighting each other. And notice that Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. The servants of David were way outnumbered by Israel. Way outnumbered by Ishbosheth and Abner. They were just a small, ragtag group of guys against Israel. And yet they had the mastery over them. And what this really shows you is that when God is in control, when God has called something to come to pass, He gives strength that doesn't make sense in the natural. He gives strength. He takes this few in number. And have we seen God do this before? where he uses something that's just a very few and does something against an innumerable host. It seems to be one of his themes. He takes the small things, the insignificant things, the things that the world doesn't like, the the base things of the world, and he uses those to confound the masses, the millions, the hundreds of millions. He confuses them, he confounds them, and he does the same thing here. And David's Rain is going to be rising, 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 and Saul's influence is going to be declining, declining, declining. Why? Is it because David is some great man? No, but David serves a great God. That's the reason. Is the great God who is behind David. And David was a man who was obedient to God. Even with all of his mistakes, he was an obedient man, and he trusted the Lord. He had his moments And I want to encourage you that too. Even as a Christian tonight, many of you have been walking with the Lord. You may be walking really solidly with him. And there may be something that happens in your life that just brings you down to the dust. Some issue of sin that maybe you hadn't considered for a long time. And all of a sudden it just blindsides you and you get walloped and you fall right into it. Listen, don't wallow in that pity. Don't wallow in that for very long. In fact, I'd encourage you not to wallow in it at all. Confess it and be done with it and continue walking because if you confess it, he is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If that is a a, a true promise of God, then how dare we act like it didn't happen or somehow try to atone for it ourselves? You know what I mean by that. So verse 18, now the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab and Abishai and Asahel. And Asahel was as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. Her name, Zeruiah, means stricken of the Lord. And we don't know much about her husband. We know in the very last verse of this chapter that he was buried in Bethlehem, which meant he probably died much earlier in the boy's life. And therefore, there's really no mention of him. And so, but Zeruiah, her sons, uh, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. And so Asahel pursued Abner. And think of this, he's the youngest of, of the, the sons of Zeruiah. The other men, Joab, he's really something. Abishai, he's really something. But now you got this young man, Asahel, who's trying to prove himself. Can you see it? You got two older brothers who are significant in, in their exploits in David's army. And here's young Asahel trying to make something of himself. Have you been young and tried to prove yourself? 
That's who he was. And so he's going after the king. He's going after, not the king, but he's going after Abner. He's going to go after the seasoned war veteran. He's going after him, and he's not stopping. He's got that, he's got that youth, and he's got that uh, drive, and he's just like, I'm just going to go after him with everything I got. I'm not going to stop. And he's just got that, and he's like, like Flint. His, he's set on it, right? And I love that about this young man. So Asahel pursued Abner, and in going, he did not turn to the right hand or to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Are you Asahel? And he said, I am. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and lay hold on one of the young men and take his armor for yourself. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. This is kind of an interesting phrase. It's something that um, you might not get when you read it. When he says, lay hold of one of the young men and take his armor for yourself, it was a big deal to take the armor from someone you have conquered. Like David, when he conquered Goliath, what did he do? He took his armor and his sword. So for Asahel, this young man, to prove himself now in battle, Abner's saying, listen, listen Asahel, you, you, just get away from me, boy. You bother me. <laughs> right? <laughs> just, just stay away. I don't want to have to hurt you. And I can, Asahel, I'm a, I know what I'm doing, and you don't know who you're messing with. I don't want to do this. I don't want to make your brother Joab. We, you know, we have a, somewhat of a relationship. If I kill you, I'm going to be at cahoots with him. I really don't want to do that. Stay away, please. Stay away, Asahel, stay away. And he's warning him. He's warning him. He's warning him. So Abner again said to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother Joab? However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of the spear, so that the spear came out of his back. And he fell down there and died on the spot. And so it was that as many as came to the place, because you know, after that event happened, the men of Israel, or the men of Judah, are still chasing the men of Israel. You know, and the men of Israel are going west now. They're they're crossing. They're in that plain of Jordan where the where the Jordan River is. They're they're fleeing from there, going over into the plain, and then going over into the east side, over to Mahanaim. And they're and and they see the place as they're running. They 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 see Asahel laying there with this spear, you know, coming in one side and out the other, and dead. War is ugly, isn't it? It's cruel. It's a horrible thing. So Joab and Abishai, Joab, the brother of Asahel, and his other brother, Abishai, they pursued Abner. And you know what happens when you mess with a son, a brother, and you got these other two brothers going after him, right? Some things haven't changed, has it? And the sun was going down while they came to the hill of Ammah, which is before Gia, by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner, and they became a unit, and they took their stand on top of a hill. And then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? Isn't this interesting? Because it really wasn't Joab that caused this whole thing. Do you notice who's complaining right here? It's, it's Abner. He knows he's defeated, even though they got the numbers. Numbers don't mean everything. They got the numbers in the army, but now they got Judah chasing them, and they're fleeing. And then he turns around at one point and he says... 
Shall the sword devour forever, Joab? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? They were all brethren. No doubt. They all came from Jacob. But it wasn't Joab that started this whole thing. Who was it that came over from Mahanaim, crossed the Jordan, uh, from your perspective, crossed from Mahanaim, crossed the Jordan, and came into Judah and, and basically is confronting them with war? Who was it? It was Abner. So what is Abner now, you know, with his tail between his legs? It's your fault. You guys started this. No, no. And, and notice, Joab, he doesn't even mention it. He, he, he doesn't, maybe he's not even aware of it. Have you ever done that? You've, you've been talking with somebody, and, and they're, they're lying to you, and you don't, you don't catch them in their lie until you think about it a couple days later, and you're like, you know what, I, I didn't even start this. Why are you complaining to me like I'm the instigator here? You're the one who came over. Have you ever thought about things like that? You know, it's a wonderful gift when you can think on the spot and, 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 and apply wisdom at the moment and to have your mind and your faculties all about you and you're critically thinking about every word that somebody's saying and you're going, oh, that lie, lie, lie. Nope. <laughs> I wish I had a brain like that because sometimes you're just so emotional. You're just, the words are going by and you're not thinking and, uh, and then it's not until later on you think, wait a minute, it wasn't me. I... Abner, why are you making it sound like I'm the, I'm the oppressor here? You're the one who came after us. But that's not what he says. Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be until you tell the people to return? Well, you're the one who came after me. Remember that? Oh, a convenient truth that was forgotten. And Joab, and isn't that so like the flesh? It is. It's so like the flesh to blame somebody else. You're, you're, you're the one who caused the problem, but as soon as you get busted, you're blaming somebody else. It sounds like the Garden of Eden. Who told you? It was the woman. And the, God goes to the woman, who told you that you were a naked serpent? Serpent's got nobody to point to. <laughs> I'm toast. So Joab said, as God lives, unless you had spoken. Notice Joab, the, the man of Judah, David's commander of the army. He tells Abner, you know, because they're across the valley and voices carry very well. As God lives, unless you had spoken, surely by morning all the people would have given up pursuing your brethren. This phrase, well, I've read this and I read this and it made no sense. And today the light bulb went off because it doesn't make any sense to me. Maybe it makes sense to you. But what he's talking about here is what was spoken of in verse 14. When Joab said, as God lives, unless you had spoken. Well, what did, Joe, what did Abner say? What, what was it that he said? It, look at verse 14. Remember what Abner said? Let the, let the young men now arise and compete before us. That's what it was. So stick verse 14 right off to the side there. Because when he says, as God lives, unless you had spoken. and You're the one who brought this up, Joe, or, um, Abner. Surely then by morning all the people would have given up pursuing their brethren. We would have stopped this before it even began had you not done that. So Joab, verse 28, he blew a trumpet. And all the people stood still and did not pursue Israel anymore, nor did they fight anymore. And then Abner and his men 
went on all that night through the plain. So now they're fleeing from the west, going down into the valley of, uh, of the Jordan Valley, and they're crossing over the Jordan, and they went through all Bithran. This word Bithran, it only occurs here in the Bible once. And uh, the Bithran is, is basically this, it's, it's, a, it's really a rocky crag. If you think about it, picture in your mind, and if you've been to Israel, this is easy to do, but even if you haven't, picture you're going into the valley, the Jordan Valley, and you're going west. You're going west, or east, I'm sorry, you're going east. And so you go down to the valley, you come to the Jordan River, and then you cross the Jordan River, and then right there in front of you is Mount Gilead. It's a long mountain range, and somewhere in that mountain there is this area, a ravine. It's a ravine where water has been flowing from west or east to west down into the Jordan and it's created this, you've been to Ithaca, you've seen these gorges and these different things. It's sort of like that. It's a, it's a very um, hard place. And it's very easy to uh, fortify and very easy to protect because there's only one way in and there's not like a lot of places to go. All right. So they're going into this place called Bithran and it's really an area. It's an area of just a ravine kind of meandering through until you get to Mahanaim, which is where... Um, Ishbosheth and Abner had been it had been like a like a capital for them for a season anyway. And so verse 30, Joab returned after pursuing Abner. And when he had gathered all, all the people together, they were missing of David's servant 19 men and Asahel. So a total of 20 men in, in Judah are killed. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin, and Abner's men, 360 men. Doesn't that sound like, I mean, unfortunately, that's what war does, but we're going to see. Look with me, actually, really quick. At just chapter, uh, verse 1 of chapter 3. There was war between Israel and the house of Saul and the house of David, but David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Underline verse 1 of chapter 3, because that's really what's happening here. David is getting stronger and stronger, even against all odds, even when the army is very much against, and, they, and they've got so many men, and David and his guys are just a handful. When you're in the will of God, God can take the small things and he can magnify them and do great things. He doesn't need a big army. He doesn't need anything. I mean, didn't the Lord multiply the fish and the loaves for those 5,000 in the, in, uh, on the east side of the Galilee? And then they took up the fragments and they had 12 baskets of leftovers. Was that a miracle? Yes, it was. Did God need a, uh, the fish house and the bakery there? No. He took the five loaves and the two fishes. He prayed. He offered them up. And he began to distribute to his disciples. And they began to distribute. And as they were doing it, God began to multiply. God can do a lot with very little. And don't be discouraged when you have very little strength or have very little of anything. 
You may not be the most gifted. You may not be the most talented. You may not be the best looking. You may be the one that everybody looks at and says, you know, you're just uh, an off-scouring of the earth. Nobody, you know, your family may even disown you because you're not as gifted as your brother or your sister. You're not as talented. You're not as good looking. And she married well, and, and look at you. What are you doing? She's gifted and talented, but what can you do? It appears like you can do nothing. Does that mean that God looks at you and says, worthless? That's what the world says. Worthless, but God says, priceless. Do you know that you're priceless in the sight of God? Even if you don't have any of that stuff. Even if you don't have the skills that pay the bills. Even if you don't have any of those things, God can use you and I to do great things. And things that are more exciting and wonderful, more than... Jeff Bezos or any of these other guys flying to Mars and doing all those funny things. God says, well, what is that going to really do in the grand scheme of things? You can speak to a soul and they can be saved. What is that in comparison to going to Mars and some fancy jet that looks like a Apple MacBook Pro? Or in some, you know, looks like a Tesla, you know, all that fancy stuff. If you got Tesla, you know, no, no problem. But he doesn't need it. He said, what you do is more important for me than anything that they're doing. That's just noise. But the soul of a man, the soul of a woman, that's more important than anything. So that's what we need to be about. And don't think to yourself, well, I don't have the skills. I didn't go to college. I didn't go to, you know, I, I'm not, I, don't, I don't have enough Bible under my belt. I don't have enough knowledge. Hey, listen, the fact that you were born again and saved, that's all you need to go and share with somebody else. Just tell them what God did for you. You don't need to give them a bunch of theology. Chances are that's going to be a, a hindrance. One of the greatest things is a changed life. When someone has a changed life, that means something happened to that life. Something happened to that person. That changes people. It does, because you can be on your best behavior for a little while, and your family goes, wow, he's a changed man. But then three weeks down the road, he gets back into the alcohol. He gets back into the drugs. He gets back into the womanizing, and she continues to steal from the department store. She continues to lie and and do all these things and sleep around. No, these are changes that happen, and they last. They last, and they last. I remember when I got saved, my mom was probably thinking to herself, Boy, I can't, I mean, I don't, I don't think she really feels this way, honestly, now, but I think at the time, she didn't understand. I want the old Rob back. I want the old son that I had. I want him back. I, I don't know what this guy, I don't know who he is. He's different. And I'm, I imagine she was waiting. How long is it going to be before he gives up on this and tries something else? Maybe goes to, you know, the yin and the yang, and maybe he's going to, you know, have crystals and, and, you know, sit in a lotus position and you know, smoke some kind of water pipe in the Middle East. I mean, what is he going to do next? But it never, ever changed. It only got better and better and better. And my heart and my mind got renewed every single day, as yours is. God doesn't need any of that. So Joab, he returned. And it says that, you know, the men of David's were 20 that died, but the men of Benjamin was 360 men who died. 
And again, just another indication that the kingdom, Saul's kingdom and authority was diminishing. David's kingdom and authority was increasing. In Psalm 75, it says this, For exaltation comes neither from the east, neither from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and he exalts another. He has the right to do it, and he does it. And when God put down Saul and he raised up David, who was anyone to say, I don't like that, I don't like your choice? tough. God knows the heart. Does he, can he look right through you like an x-ray? You better believe it. Somebody who's better looking, taller, handsome, got all the right degrees, <laughs> can speak really well. God's like, oh, I don't need him. I love him and, and hopefully he'll come to me or maybe God knows. He, know, he definitely knows whether he's, somebody's going to come to him or not. But I don't, I don't need him. I don't need to call him for this thing. I'm going to use somebody that doesn't have any of that stuff. He always does that. Not always, but he doesn't need those things. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 20, remember that God gave to Daniel Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the interpretation of it. And Daniel answered and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. I love that. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6, it says this, The Lord kills and makes alive. Does that bother you? The Lord kills and makes alive. If he causes me to die this evening, there's a reason for it. There's a reason. The Lord kills and he makes alive. And he brings down to the grave and he brings up. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. Hallelujah. Do you know that you're going to inherit the throne of glory? That the Bible says that we're going to sit with him, with Jesus, in heavenly places. Can you imagine that? It's my turn this week. I'm going to sit on the throne. Well, how many people are there? Don't worry, we've got plenty of time. <laughs> we've got plenty of time. You've got an eternity Notice verse 32, finally. Then they took up Asahel, and they buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. And this is really all we know about Zeruiah's husband, or Joab's father, which was also Asahel's father. All we know is that he died at some point, probably early in the boys' lives, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at daybreak, where David and his men and his family was. So working against the will of God. You know, that's really what tonight was uh, about. Abner just reaching out for willingly ignorant, or maybe he knew exactly. I believe he did know. But it's never wise to go against the will of God, the revealed will of God. When God says, I'm going to do something, you better get behind it or get out of the way. When God has his hand and he's doing something, support it. Support it. And if you don't know, it's better just to keep silent and watch God do what he's going to do. Like Gamaliel said, right? If this is of man, it's just going to come and go. And boy, that takes faith, doesn't it? To just be patient. 
If it's of man, it's just going to come and go. He's going to have followers and it's going to fall apart. Everyone will forget about him. But if it's of God, then you can do nothing against it. And do you want to be found fighting against God? Abner was fighting against God. Let's not fight against God. Let's be completely his. Do you want to be completely his again? Can you renew your heart tonight and say, Lord, I want you to do that work in me again? Let's stand and let's pray and ask him to do that, shall we? Lord Jesus, you know us. Lord, you know all of our weaknesses. And you, Lord, know how many times, even myself, how many times I said, no, God. And Lord, I'm so thankful to be alive. I'm so thankful that you have blessed me and my brothers and my sisters here tonight, Lord. How your, your love for them is great. And Lord, you desire to draw them near. Lord, you desire to work in them, causing them to will and to do of your good pleasure. Lord, that we would be a blessed people, knowing that we're in the will of God and desiring, Lord, to, to do those things that are right. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you and not on the things of this earth and the things that are going on all around us. Lord, how we need your spirit resting upon us. Lord, we pray for the baptism of your spirit. Not in some phony thing, Lord, but the real thing. A real feeling, God, to be effective in the, in the country that we're in and the, and the place that we are in this time. Would you please pour out your spirit as we go out Sunday night? Help us, Lord. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.